Good afternoon, everybody. This is Debbie Q with The Right Shoe. The Right Shoe is a podcast about all things strange and unusual, especially in reference to a death. Today, I'm going to be talking about a case that is not only fascinating, but it is mind-blowingly large, and there's a lot of material, so I'll have to start right away, and I will tell you that it, it almost makes me nervous doing this case because it is so large. There's just so much information. It's just me. Little old me. This is the case of Stephen Stainer and his brother, Carrie Stainer. Before I started it, I'd always known about Stephen Stainer, always. It was listener requested by Melissa. Hooray, hooray. And I said, okay, you know, and then I looked at it and I was like, oh my God, I forgot about his brother. I mean, it was just crazy. Now, but I kept calling him Corey, but I think there's a reason for that, and I'll get to that reason in a minute. But it's Carrie, like Carrie Grant. And the Right Shoes podcast, like I said, it is in its well into its third year. It, you know, I try to get them out as much as I can. This one was particularly tough. Okay, so let's start because it's going to be hours long, and it's so late already, and I've been like crocheting this rug. It's gorgeous, but it's take that's taking me a lot of time. It's going to take me about another six months to do because it's it's big. So you know, it's just been a lot. I tell you, I got sober for a total of fifteen months now, and I feel fantastic. But I am so involved with things; it's really been tricky. <laughs> All right, this is the story of Stephen Stainer and Carrie Stainer. And if you don't know the story, oh my lordy, it is freaking unbelievable. All right, so Stephen Stainer, he was born April 18th, 1965. He was born in Merced, California, and he was one of five children. He was born to Delbert and Kay Stainer, but they call him Del, the father, and he was one of five children. Now, the two youngest do- uh, girls was Jody and Corey. That's where I think I got the misinformation when I kept calling Carrie Corey forever. Because I was here and around when this all really happened. So I remember everything right back to Stephen and everything that subsequently happened. The oh, His older brother was Carrie, and then he had an older sister, Cindy. Now, they all lived, they lived on a farm. I do believe it sounded like they were in Merced. Mer, Merced, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Merced County. And it sounded like they were in the same county, but they were in like this big, huge farm at first, like huge and a ranch. And, and Carrie, or Stephen would follow his dad Dell around and they were really close but then they had a move for some reason and then they became there was a smaller it, it was like just a regular old house and and they went from having this huge ranch to a small yard and I mean even with me I mean I, w- I always grew up in the city so we never had much of a yard but I remember we had yard enough that when I had to move down to like Kensington at one point just for a little bit of time and I was with my kids it sucked because 
down there, the backyards are, I'm talking, you got a little tiny patch of nothing. And it sucked because, like, I went from the kids running around at night catching lightning bugs to you really couldn't go out. I mean, if you could, but th- th- it was just cement. It just sucked. So Stephen did not like this. It was upsetting to him. He was always kind of uh, doing little naughty things and but he would get in trouble for it like his parents were like instilling in him do not go to a friend's house without calling us and do not you know this was the, the 80s really was the beginning of stranger danger because I, I was a 70s, 80s child. Like, I grew up in the 80s, but I was around in the 70s long enough to remember that I don't think, you know, in the 70s, man, we stayed out till late, 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 and there was never issues. But come the 80s, that's when my mom started saying, like, you know, watch what you're doing. There's people out there that, you know, so stranger danger did start, I would believe, around the 80s. Not so much in this. I don't even remember in the 70s ever being told that I couldn't go. I used to go to the woods by myself. I mean, it was just so safe. Nothing happened. There was, you know, if if you were, I mean, gosh, I remember being lost in a store one time, like two guys or something, and, and people would just be like, oh, you know, bringing you back to the the cashier, you know, chuckling about, you know, oh, look at this silly little girl. It it just wasn't so ominous and scary. Okay, so then, you know, they went, they moved here. He was very close to Dell. It was a nice little life for the kids in the beginning. I guess when he, one day when he was, I think he was traveling home from school. Yeah, December 4th, 1972. So that would make him age seven. He was seven years old. He was approached by a man on his way home from school. Stephen was. Irvin Edward Murphy, who had become acquainted with convicted child rapist Kenneth Parnell. They had both worked together at a resort in Yosemite National Park. Um, Irvin Murphy described he was like a simple-minded kind of man, not like slow. Parnell, who was much more devious, he said he was an aspiring minister and he wanted to, he needed a child. He wanted to, he wanted help abducting a young boy so he could raise him in a religion. And I don't think Murphy even understood outside of, he probably used some religious mumbo jumbo on him. And convinced him to abduct this child, which he did. And he, they came up to Stephen and they said, "Oh, we're 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 a part of this group, and we want to know if your mom, because their parents were Mormons, and they did used to go to the Mormon church." And they said, "We're a part of these this religion. Like we think your mom would want to join us or give money to us." And Stephen said, "Well, I'll run back and I'll get my mom." But they were like, "No, we're we're, we're going to take you. We're going to drive you there." And Stephen, they said, like he was aggressively saying no, but they kind of coaxed him in the car. So when Stephen got in the car. Right away, they were going the wrong way, and he kept saying, like, where are you going? I guess he stopped at a payphone at one point. Um, this would be Kenneth Parnell, the real bad guy. And he said, oh, I just talked to your mother, and, and they can't handle you anymore, so I'm going to be taking care of you. Now, that night, he would consistently ask about his mother, but already, being the child groomer that he was, the scumbag, he 
was saying, like, no, your mom doesn't want you. Your parents can't afford you. And, you know, as a little kid, you have five kids. I mean, it's so sad. Like, he literally told him at one point, your mom just doesn't want you anymore. And that must be so devastating to hear as a child. And, and I think, you know, children are impressionable. And, I mean, what a scumbag, you know? So that's how it all started. And he would molest Stephen as early as that night. It's just crazy. You know, that day they drove a confused Stainer to Kathy's Valley. Unbeknownst to Stainer, Parnell's cabin was right near his maternal grandfather's house by only a couple hundred feet. So he molested Stainer the very first night. Parnell began raping Stainer 13 days later on December 17, 1972. After Stainer told Parnell many times during that week that he wanted to go home, he told Stainer that he had been granted legal custody because his parents had too many children and they could not afford them. Parnell began calling the boy Dennis Parnell. He kept the middle name Gregory, which was his real name, and he enrolled him in several schools. And, you know, it's true. I I mean, I do remember even in my grade school, like people coming in and out of schools. And then I think back and I'm like, God, were there's kids like what was going on there? I just remember this one girl, Trisha. She was like heavy scent and people used to tease her. And one day we went over her house to look at these kittens And I remember her dad was like flipping out that she had brought, and nobody ever wanted to deal with this kid. So the fact that she had friends, you know, you think the parents would have been like, oh, you know, instead the dad was freaking and they lived in this really scummy apartment. And I often wonder what the hell was going on there. You know, you don't know. It was weird back. The 70s were a strange time, but it was a lot easier to get away with stuff like this. So they, he was able to get him in school. No issues. They never even questioned it. They just figured Parnell was his dad. One of the few positive aspects in Stephen Jung life is he was able to have a dog that they named Queenie. This had been given to Parnell by his mother, who was not even aware of Stephen. She, he, Stephen held on to the dog. So he was in school. He lived in locations like Santa Rosa, Compache. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. It's spelled C-O-M-P-T-C-H-E. The consonants word. You know, no veils. So, Compache, I'm going to put it. I have no idea how to pronounce it. Compache, I hate that. I don't know how, but it's C-O-M-P-T-C. Early on, he allowed Stephen to drink at a young age and come and go as he virtually pleased. I mean, you know, I, I know this sounds weird, but, you know, he was molesting Stephen, which is freaking a nightmare and horrible. I, I don't want to say Stephen got used to it or anything, but I think young kids as bizarre as it sounds like adapt to things quickly and he was like drinking smoking coming as he went and please and i think that really uh, how do i put this without seeming like i'm not i'm not sympathetic i i just think as a young child it it just really warped steven's mind badly you know he it was like okay i have to do this but I'm kind of do whatever the hell else I want. Not that that was good in any way, shape, or form. As a young kid, it it really must be tough. So this is how he was living. And that's it. Like, 
an adult stainer remarked it could have he could have used these because Parnell used you know moved from one menial job to another and sometimes he had to leave home leaving Stephen unguarded Stephen said I could have easily left but he he was not only did he at this point kind of think his family didn't want or need him but he thought you know well what the heck like I, I don't even know how to get help. Like, what, what does he do? What do I say? You know, he's very confused. I mean, this kind of be really confusing. He did have the dog, Queenie. And also, a very strange aspect of this whole kidnapping thing. There was a woman, for about a year and a half, there was this woman, Barbara Matthias, lived with Parnell and Stainer. According to Stephen... Matthias, with Parnell, raped him on nine occasions as a child of nine. In 1975, on Parnell's instructions, she tried to lure another boy into Parnell's car. The attempt was unsuccessful. And Matthias later claimed to have been completely unaware that Stephen had been abducted. But that is so freaking disgusting. Like, you don't think this kid... I mean, he was obviously extremely underage. You know, Stephen, even at this time. At this time, what was he? He was... Yeah, he was 10. Come on. You don't know he's not supposed to be there? That's... It's maddening. As he entered puberty, I guess Parnell thought, you know, I guess Parnell, he was getting, oh, sorry, there, of course, somebody got shot around here, so now there's massive helicopters flying about. As Stephen got older, they, he didn't really know what to do because Stephen was becoming not so attractive to him, which is so disgusting. He began to look for someone else to abduct. On February 14, 1980, Parnell enlisted a teenage friend of Stainer's, of Stevens, yes, of Stevens, named Randall Poorman. He enlisted him, he gave him money, drugs, and said, listen, if you, can you help lure this kid in? So he agreed, and they kidnapped five-year-old Timothy White in Ukiah, California. Now, the kid was obviously freaked out, and Stephen saw this, and I think it reminded him of when he was a child. And because also Goofball, you know, started telling him, you know, um, Kenneth Parnell started saying, oh, well, your parents don't want you and all this. And he started like, hey, like, that's what he told me. You know, so he started realizing, like, maybe that wasn't true. You know, a lot of feelings going on. And he was like, look, he is not going to do to me, do to him what he did to me. So he was hell-bent on getting Timothy White out of there before he got molested. On March 1st, 1980, while Parnell was away at his security job, Stephen and White hitchhiked 40 miles they, because they couldn't find, they originally they started looking for Timothy White's home, but they couldn't find it. So they went to a police station. Now, you know, he told Timothy White to go in and tell a story, which he, I guess he might have tried, but he came running out. So Stephen had to go in with them. And like the cop was like, well, who are you? I mean, and this is where that movie came from. I remember the movie came out in the 80s and he says, I know my first name is Stephen. So... He, you know, he said, I think my middle name is Gregory and my last name is Stainer. 
they go to the Stainer house. Now, the mom is, like, on the floor when they knock on the door because she thinks they found his bones or something. This is seven years later. You know, uh, Stephen's a young adult at this point, and they said, no, Stephen's alive, and he's at the police station in Ukiah. So they go and get him. Now, the thing about when, you know, the mom was just so excited and, you know, I mean, how do you react in that situation? How do you know how to react? How do you know, you know, she is so damn excited. She wants the world to know that Stephen's home. He's a hero. He saved this little boy, Timothy White. You know, this, and it's amazing. I mean, and they have pictures and video of them coming home and they're like kissing him and freaking out. And, you know, but to Stephen... For seven years, you're you're tucked away in this house and you're being molested, and you know. So I, I, it's like, oh my god! Like, and then suddenly you're thrust into the spotlight and called a hero, and all this attention is beating on you. And as anybody knows, fame is weird. Uh, fame is, I'm sure. I don't know. Some people might like it. I just think. I don't know. I, I Fame in any aspect, I don't think is a real great thing. But yet, in this situation, it seems like it's a nightmare. I mean, you're this young kid. You just got out of a very tragic incident. You know, and the cameras are right on you. I mean, he was overwhelmed. The family was overwhelmed. They expected, like, okay, we're going to go back to just being the family where we were before. Now, in the meantime, Parnell was arrested on suspicion of abducting two boys. The police checked in his background. They found sodomy convictions way back. The child were reunited. Parnell was not charged with numerous sexual assaults on Stainer and the other boys because at the time there was a statute of limitations on all of this. I, I don't believe there is now. There can't be. Now the Mendocino prosecutors decided not to prosecute Parnell for the sexual assaults that occurred in their jurisdiction. Murphy for helping kidnap Stainer and Poorman for for helping kidnap White were convicted of lesser charges. Both claimed they knew nothing of the sexual assaults. Barbara Matthias was never even arrested. Stainer remembered the kindness Uncle Murphy had shown him in his first week of captivity while they were both under the influence of Parnell's manipulation, and he believed that Murphy was as much a victim as him and Timothy were. Now, that's the shame because they they were both, like, kind of... I think they only got, like, five years, which is just ridiculous. It's really... Pathetic. I, I, I just, he never was, trust me, he never got what he deserved. Let me see. And what ultimately happened, oh, uh, but he, okay, so Parnell wasn't really, he was arrested again for other, so why he didn't get convicted for Stephen Stainer so much, he was, he kept doing what he was doing. He's a child molester. They never change. Me and my sister were talking about this. You should just shove them in a hole somewhere because they're never going to change. Once a child molester, always a child molester. It's a sickness. They need to be removed from society. Put them on an island. Do something, but get rid of them. They're scumbags and they'll never change ever. He didn't. He ultimately died while incarcerated at age 76, January 21st, 2008. Uh, Died of natural causes. He had been in hospice care for some time. 
He was just a fucking scumbag. You know, he was sentenced to 25 years to life because of, oh, yeah, that's right. He had, when he was in the nursing care, he had asked some nurse to help him abduct somebody. So he got more time for that, not actually abducting the person, but suggesting it to someone. He got more time for that than he ever did when he was actually molesting people. But that's because the laws had significantly changed since he had kidnapped Steven Stainer. But the guy, it just makes me sick to my stomach. They should really, there's just certain crimes that you should not be able to do twice. Now, self-defense, if it's true self-defense, okay, like murder-wise, but if you murder someone in cold blood, you know, they should be like, and it's not self-defense, you know, you should just throw, get, get rid of them. Get rid of people. Stop with the, oh, the rehabilitation shit. Because I'm telling you, it's, there's, some people are just sick and you can, it can't be helped. And there's no use. There's no use keeping them thriving and alive. What the, what's the point? I, I never understood that. Stop wasting money and time. But the laws are so convoluted now, you know? You get these lawyers that can double talk and they'll get people at anything. Okay, so, and meanwhile, back then, when Stephen got back to his family, he returned almost a grown man. And yet my parents saw me as their seven-year-old. They stopped trying to teach me. After they stopped trying to teach me the fundamentals all over again, it got better. But why doesn't my dad hug me? Everything had changed. He tried counseling, but he didn't feel it worked. And he refused to discuss the sexual abuse details. He didn't want to talk about it. This, the father, his father, uh, Dell, he didn't feel that he needed counseling. He was just like, you know, he was, he was smoking. He was drinking. He was a man. He was of his own person at a very young age because he had grown up like that. And that really sucks because I think it created not just a huge problem for getting them back together, getting them back into a family atmosphere, but it caused a huge problem ultimately with just trying to make them whole again. It is such a sad, that part to me is so, so sad. It's a bummer. It's a real bummer. Stephen, I think, came back an adult, and that's it. He, it, his life had already, he, he didn't have a childhood. He grew up too fast, and uh, counseling wasn't seen the same way. And, and back then, you just dealt with it and moved on, and it, it just created not a good atmosphere for true healing. And he met this girl while he was working named Jody Edmondson, and he had two children with her. In 1985, Stainer married 17-year-old Jody Edmondson. He had two children, daughter Ashley and son Stephen Jr. He worked with child abduction groups. He spoke to children about personal safety, and he gave interviews. He joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. At the time, at this time, he was living in Merced and working at a pizza shop. His wife did say that there was just demons in Stephen that really he could never get rid of. It was a shame. I do totally remember in 1989, because I had followed the Stainer story, uh, in September 16, 1989, 
you know, Stephen was driving home from work on his motorcycle and a car hit and ran. The alleged driver was later identified by witnesses. 500 people attended his funeral and Timothy White was a pallbearer, but yes, Stephen Stainer sustained fatal head injuries and died on September 16, 1989. No karma came around and made his life bright or twinkling. His wife said, like, you know, because you always want to think, oh, he went through this, so he should be given this. Or, you know, life is, it's not, it's not a series of, like, give and takes and you're going to get this for that. And it really is. And it's hard to, it's hard for us as human beings to realize that life isn't fair. Like genuinely realize that life is not fair. Sometimes it is for some people. I mean, I am grateful as of I sit here today, I feel like my life has been just truly blessed. I've always been very lucky with many, many things. I've been giving chances again and again and again. If if I go over my life, I've really been blessed. But some people, like when you hear these crime stories and like girls that get killed so young, oh my God, my heart just breaks. It makes me all the more grateful. I, I just believe that if if you don't have true tragedy in your life, be grateful. And if you do, try to come to terms with whatever that tragedy might be. Because we only have this life, this one life as us. As whoever, you know, if you believe in reincarnation, maybe it'll be different. But we only have this one life. And, and if you if you live in anger, it, what's the use, you know? You really have to take with what you're given and just kind of deal with it. I just feel very sorry for people who have, like, true tragedy. It just, like I said again, it makes me all the more grateful for what I've been given. So Stephen died, and, and his, you know, his kids didn't have a father, and his wife lost her husband, and she said he was such a great guy. And, and I think the whole, you know, everyone that knew of the Stainer story really felt broken for him. Or Stephen Stainer. What a, you know, I guess, how old was he when he passed away? He was very young. He was only 24. Oh, my God. December 4th, 1972 to September 16th, 1989. Born in Merced, California. Died in Merced, California. There was 500 people at his funeral. And as sad as that story is, now you would think, okay, that's a sad life. And it, you just can't believe it. I will say, uh, Timothy White, he became a, oh my God. Timothy White later became a Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department deputy. He died on April 1st, 2010 at age 35 from a pulmonary embolism. Nearly five years later, on August 28, 2010, a statue of Stainer White was dedicated in Applegate Park in Merced for them. Uh, residents of Ukiah, White's hometown, carved a statue showing a teenage stainer with young white in hand while escaping their activity. I mean, they really honored Stephen for taking white out of that situation, and he was never molested by Parnell, thank God. And that is, he's a true hero, and that's how he, should, he died and should be known as, no matter what came next, because it is truly horrific. While all that was going on, this was going on. 
Carrie, of course, Carrie was his older brother, and he was it was Stephen's older brother. He was born August thirteenth, nineteen sixty one. Now, at an early age, he had very violent thoughts. Early, early age. So even though when Stephen went missing and all this stuff happened. You know, people could say, oh, he, you know, stuff made him crazy in regards to Stephen's disappearance. But that's, you know, there was, there was signs before then. So I think from an early age, Carrie had some issues. So Carrie was having issues. They said, like, there was a lot of weird stuff about Carrie Steiner. He said he felt very neglected while Stephen was, because his parents were just, really just grief-stricken over Stephen. So, like, one time when Stephen came home, I think there was a story that he was, that mom was setting the table. Literally, she forgot to set the table for Carrie, and Stephen brought it to her attention. She was like, oh, oh, you know, because their attention was so focused on Stephen. And they were the two boys in the house. The, The other children were girls. So Carrie really became somewhat of a just forgotten illusion. Carrie Stainer, there was a couple of inferences that girls that came to the Stainer house said that Carrie would always stare that stare at him in a very creepy way. Like he just was a creepy guy. People called him a creepy loner. You know, he loved his brother and people remember him as a nice guy, but he was quiet. He he was a good cartoonist. I, he did wear a lot of, he did draw a lot of really cool stuff. It says he seemed as though he had a compulsion with trying to get close to women or be sexual with them, but he was unable, unable to develop any sort of inter, interpersonal relationships with them. The contrast between the two brothers is surreal, says one, says one Sean Flint, a journalist who wrote about both Stainer and both Carrie and Stephen for this, uh, I guess, an Esquire magazine. Carrie would get upset. He heard stories about him wishing that his brother would come home. But when he did, you know, it became confusing because his brother was getting all this attention, his parents' attention. Also, he developed, he would actually have to wear a hat because he would get trichotillomania. It's a disorder when you start pulling your hair out of your head, your eyebrows, everywhere. And he had this, and and it was so bad that he had, like, spots of baldness. And it was bad. In several pictures, you do see Carrie wearing a hat because this trichotillomania was so bad at one point. And then after high school, Carrie seemed a little lost. Like, he didn't know. You know, he would go. He would take refuge in nearby Yosemite, where he would drive in there and get lost in nature. Whatever demons were clamoring around in his head, he would get rid of by smoking pot or swimming naked or just trying to get away from society, drawing his drawings. He actually got a job as a handyman at the Cedar Lodge in Yosemite when he should have been seeking mental health treatment. Because not only, and it just seems to go in line with Stephen, like not only was he, the, the whole, it seems like the whole family wasn't ever treated properly for what happened to Stephen. And then you have Carrie, who obviously, even at a young age, he said it wasn't just because Stephen 
was missing and and then he came back and became like a hero it wasn't even just that carrie always had these feelings of violence inside girls that came over to the house always felt that he was creepy always felt like he would stare at a weird he made girls nervous all the time it wasn't just that the boom it happened after steven it was innate in carrie so he gets older he gets this job at cedar lodge and then in 1999 carol's son julie son and sylvina pelosa who was from argentina she was an exchange student and they all went to go to the national park just to see the sights, have fun. They're in this. They're in the room at the Cedar Lodge when a knock comes at the door. Carol opens it, and it's Carrie Stainer. Now Carrie says, "Oh, I'm the maintenance man," which he is. He says, "And I gotta come in and fix something in your bathroom, the wires, you know, whatever." He told him, and she said, "Well, no, I I'm gonna call the manager." And you're not coming in. And she argues with him a little bit. And he says, okay, call the manager. That'll be fine. I'll just wait here while you do. And I guess she relents, which kind of sucks when I think about it. When anybody thinks about it, it sucks that she relented and didn't go with her judgment. When he comes in, he just says, at first, he just says, I'm desperate. I need your car, your money. I won't do anything. He binds them up. But then he throws the two girls in the bathroom and he literally strangles the mother. He kills her very quickly. When he gets to Julie and that, God, the poor girl, it just breaks my heart that this, Sylvina, the Argentinian woman, she was just freaking out so bad. He couldn't take it because she was screaming and crying. He kills her. He takes Julie. She doesn't know her mom's dead. He takes her into this car. He's driving her around. She's trying to placate him and be nice because she thinks her mom's still alive. And he kills Julie, too. And she would eventually be found against a tree, sitting up in a tree, dead. I I mean, he burns the car. He takes the two victims, Carol and Sylvina, and he puts them in the trunk of the car in the Pontiac that Sund had rented. It was a red Pontiac. Puts her in, sets fire to the car. They would eventually find them and have to use dental records to identify them. But they didn't find Juliet. It was only when this note sent to the police with a hand-drawn map indicating the third victim. And it said, we had fun with this one. We had fun. Now, Carrie deliberately wrote that to throw off investigators. So they went to the map, but they will, they did find Jody by this yuck tree and her throat had been cut. They start interviewing employees. They interview Carrie, but they never suspect him because he's Steven Stainer's brother and he's been through enough trauma. So don't, don't bother him. And he had no criminal history at this point. I mean, and not only that, but. There's so, it's so intricate. Like while he was trying to, I guess he kills the mom. I don't know how he hides the mom from both of them, but he's trying to rape both of them and he's having like erectile dysfunction. Like this guy is all over the place. I I don't know. Like that says a lot to me right there. Like what the hell? I don't know. He, He just was... He's truly nuts. You know, he throws the, the, he's driving around with Julie and they're making small talk and she doesn't even realize that her mom 
and Sylvie, Sylvina is in the car as they're driving around. Now, something happened. They do look around for this Pontiac, and they search so good that they actually find 27 other cars, abandoned vehicles, during their search. But they, they finally find the rental car, and they find the burn remains, but they find this plastic insert in Modesta. And it's Carol Sums. It's like a little thing with IDs and credit cards. And they're going through it and they find that one credit card is missing. So they start keeping an eye on it and its usage because it's being used. Well, lo and behold, it's being used by two guys, Eugene Dykes and Michael Larrick. They call him Mickey. Uh, They call them in. Now, the one guy that they call Mickey says, you know, He denies everything. But Eugene, he says, he admits to everything. So they arrest them. They think, oh, you know, we got the guys. We're good to go. Everything's fine until there's a girl named Schwa Ruth Armstrong. They call her Joey. And she works at Yosemite. She's a very, like, happy-go-lucky kind of girl. She's leaving. Her dad even says that night, like, please be careful. But she says, oh, dad, they were caught. Like, you know, they don't have to worry about anything anymore because everyone believed they were caught. Well, that night, she packed up. She was ready to go. But here comes Carrie, and he has a knife. He, like, overpowers her. She takes, she, he gets her in the car. She somehow gets away from him. She takes off running, but he gets her again. And he is a pretty big guy. She's tiny. He kills her. Not only does he kill her, but he decapitates her. When the police find her, you know, she doesn't come to, she was supposed to go on a trip. She never gets there. I think she was supposed to go to Sausalito, but she never made it. When they go back, they go to where she lives, and they find the struggle. They find, like, broken glasses. Her door's partially open. They know she was abducted. They eventually find her headless body with her head about 40 feet away from where her body is. I mean, it's just unbelievable. She had probably been murdered on Wednesday, July 21st. She was seen that day. She never made it to Sausalito. When she did not appear, her would-be host phoned the police, found her car in front of her cab, and packed for the trip. There's nothing they could have really done. I guess they go... When they were talking to Eugene Dykes and his friend Mickey, their, their story just didn't make sense. It just wasn't matching up. So they kind of knew that it, it wasn't... You know, they Larwick, they, they were kind of realizing it wasn't them. They're going through all the evidence, and they said there was a 1979 Blue and White International Scale, which Carrie has one of. So when they interview Carrie, they take pictures of his tire marks with the tire marks that was near Joey's, and they're remarkably similar. So he's starting to get nervous. I mean, they detained him for questions. They had let him go. Uh, Stainer's apartment was searched. They're starting to realize that that's their guy, but they still don't know for sure. Wow. I mean, they really, you know, he goes to this Laguna del Sol nudist colony and this woman starts talking to him and he says, all these police are up my ass about these murders. And she tells her 
man, she tells a, a manager at this nudist colony that he's there and he's talking about the murders. The manager saw the story on the television, recognizes Stainer's photo because they still want him for questioning and they couldn't find him. Agents descended on the colony. There was like three FBI. Let me see. There was three. There was three FBI agents and two sheriffs deputies that come in and Sanders eating breakfast. Now he holds his hands up, which the one guy said was weird to him because they just went up for questioning. But on the way, when they got him in the car, uh, he was in the back. Uh, and this, the one guy, it was one detective. I don't think it was agent Christopher Hopkins, but there was a couple that just said they had a feeling that it wasn't the two guys. Agent Jeff Reinick, he was the one. He takes Carrie to the headquarters to talk to him. And he was the one, Reinick said, I just never thought that it was these two goons, the meth heads, Eugene Dykes and his friend Mick. He said, I just didn't think it was him, them. He said, I, I you know, and, and Carrie when they're driving back, he, he just starts spilling the beans. Like, it just starts coming out. So he basically confesses, which is really insane. I mean, it blows people's mind. And when this came out, I have to say, when they first said that Carrie Stainer was the serial killer, I'm thinking, I, I just didn't, I don't know. I, I don't want to say I thought they were exaggerating, but it just seems so unreal. I can imagine that it was really hard for them to believe Carrie had anything to do with this. He said, like, in regards to Joey, could they have done anything to prevent Armstrong's killing? They they believe that they did everything reasonable that they could have. Carrie Stainer, having been one of the people questioned after the triple killings in February, but at the time, no evidence linked him directly to the crime had been released because he was the handyman at the Cedar Lodge in El Porto where the son the Meloso group had stayed before they were murdered. His questioning at the time was more just routine than anything else. The time agents, this time agents detained him, uh, investigated, investigator searched his truck, confiscated his backpack. They told him not to leave El Puerto. According to the Chronicle, San Francisco Chronicle, a witness says Stainer was angry about authorities seizing his backpack. He was also angry about how his truck had been searched. Stainer's apartment was later searched and authorities discovered evidence that linked him to Armstrong's murder. Special Agent Maddox said, During the last 24 hours, we have developed special information linking Stainer to the Sun Peloso murders. By the 23rd, Stainer had disappeared from the area. They finally caught up with him at the Laguna del Sol Nudist Colony. The manager had seen the story on television, recognized him as one of his guests. Actually, it was a woman who told the manager and agents descended upon the colony where he did a more lengthy interrogation. On his way to the police interview, he described the murder of Joey Armstrong as if he was reading a label soup can. And then he soon confessed to the murders of Carol's son, Julie's son, and Silvino Peloso, once in custody. Stainer said to investigators, I want you to get hold of some producers in Los Angeles. I want a movie of the week made about my story. There was a movie made about his brother, Stephen, and he kind of wanted that same... God, that's weird. Uh, they had gathered enough evidence... 
He did allow some interviews. He said, I am guilty. I did murder Carol's son, Julie's son, Sylvina Peloso, and Joey Armstrong. None of the women were sexually abused in any way. He said he had been fantasizing about killing women for the last 30 years and described in detail how he murdered all the women. He had strangled Peloso and Carol's son in their rented cabin in the Cedar Lodge Motel, then took Julie's son to a lake where he killed her the next morning. He abandoned the group's rental car with the bodies of Carol and Sylvina inside, burned the evidence, retrieved the wallet, which he dumped in Modesto to confuse authorities. That's when the two lung kids picked it up and started using the credit cards. He thought he had gotten away with the earlier crimes, but he could not resist the urge to kill Armstrong after he struck up a chance conversation with her. I am sorry to for the loved ones where they were where they were. I wish I could have controlled myself and not done what I'd done. They had found a lot of hair evidence and bodily fluids, stains on the clothing, and he did admit to touching Joey during his encounter. With her, I mean, they said, who is Carrie Stainer? A relatively quiet but friendly handyman. He was never lewd or perverse in public, but there was warning signs in his younger years. Stainer's father admitted that he thinks his son might have suffered a trauma at age 11 when the other younger brother, Stephen, was abducted in 1972. At the time, Stephen had been forced to endure sexually abu- sexual abuse by his kidnapper, and who he finally turned into the police. But says Delbert, puberty-aged Carrie endured some emotional hardships because of that incident. And people just said it's such a shock. It's really, he was prosecuted. In May 2002, he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. He talked about how he... He went into the room under the guise of fixing a leak, and then he sexually assaulted both girls and brutally murdered Carol's son and Sylvina Peloso in the room. He then carried Julie to a vista point near Lake Don Pedro, pledging his love, and then cut her throat as the sun rose. The issue was who, no longer who committed the murders, but whether he was sane. He was already serving a life sentence for the murder of Jody Armstrong, Wow, they cut their clothes off. How frightened they must have been. I'll see what, ultimately, I think he's he's, in, he's still incarcerated. So I, I'm not sure how much time he specifically received for Carol, son, uh, Carol's murder with her daughter, Julie, and the Argentina, uh, Peloso. But I think... You know, altogether, it's it's 2022, 23, and he was convicted in 2002. So he's he's going to be in there, I think, the rest of his life. They're not going to let him out. They said a woman named Lena learned in 1999 that her mother, her sister, and her had nearly been murdered by Carrie Stainer. Her mother had been dating him, and he decided to kill them on Valentine's Day. His attempt was foiled when other people were at the house at the time he planned to commit the crimes. They said he loves his brother, Stephen, who, you know, had such hardships. It's it's a lot. It's a lot to be to go over. There's a lot of material in this. I implore you to go, you know, research this as well, just because there is so like there's so much like you could go on and on and on and keep researching and just find new stuff. Even as I'm looking up like little tidbits, it just goes into the it's it's a rabbit hole. It is unbelievable that. 
you know, you don't think, oh my God, this family has had so much trauma. It cannot possibly be Stephen Stan. It can't be Carrie Stainer. I mean, his brother was kidnapped. It just can't be him. And then it, he, he and and I don't think that's what led to it. It seemed like Carrie had a lot of complaints growing up that he was creepy, that he had thoughts of violence at an early age, and maybe his his brother being kidnapped kind of suppressed that for a while more than anything else. Maybe after it all was over, then it just became like a cork, like a, a an exploding bottle, like you know, it just can't hold it in anymore. But um, I, I hope I did it justice. I It's late. I got to get out of here. This is Debbie Q with the right shoe. Love you guys. And I'll have something for you ASAP.